Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning from Miami, Florida. This is Fresh Art International, and I'm Kathy Bird. I'm an independent curator based on Miami Beach, and five years ago, I launched the Fresh Art International podcast featuring conversations about creativity with artists, curators, filmmakers, and architects from around the U.S. and far beyond. You can find more than 100 episodes anywhere you go for podcasts. Last fall, John Kenye, founder of Jolt Radio, invited me to host this weekly contemporary art program, and I broadcast my first series of live shows remote from the Sao Paulo Biennial Pavilion in Sao Paulo, Brazil, thanks to John. He set me up with this remote broadcast system that was incredibly exciting. But since then, I've been delving into the contemporary art and art cultural scene in South Florida. And this week, we're zeroing in on culture and community. We'll be speaking with some of the culture makers involved in artists and writers residency programs in South Florida and more. One residence community situated at the southernmost tip of the state is the studios of Key West. To set the stage for our conversations today, let's listen to the podcast episode I recorded a couple of years ago with director Jed Dodds, writer Josie Sigler, and artists Lori Schwartz and Kara Bonowitz. I'm Kathy Bird, and this is Fresh Talk. Today's conversation is the latest in our series about residency programs for artists, writers, and musicians. We recorded the first episode in 2012 at Nomad Studios in Barcelona. Since then, we've taken you to meet residents in Roswell, New Mexico, Art Pace in San Antonio, McDowell Colony in New Hampshire, and Fountainhead in Miami. We're headed to visit the studios of Key West, three and a half hours by car from Miami. The two-mile-by-four-mile island sits at the southern tip of Route 1, also known in the Florida Keys as the Overseas Highway. We're 100 miles by boat from Cuba here. Key West's legendary concoction of tropical sun and sea, history, and culture has inspired writers, artists, and musicians for decades. The sounds of countless free-ranging roosters and native birds add to the aura of this place. A barn known as the Green Parrot is one of the spots where residents and visitors go to experience live music, poetry, and storytelling. Winter never comes to Key West. All year long, hippies of all ages turn out for sunset rituals on Mallory Square, featuring acrobats, magicians, street vendors, and musicians. The local artists, writers, and musicians that established the studios of Key West in 2006 are committed to their community. They set up a studio artist program and launched a year-round series of exhibitions, workshops, performances, and residencies. A few years ago, Jed Dodds came to direct their cultural hive. It's built on the notion of maximizing the synergies that come from that, you know, when you bring lots of artists of different kinds together. What interested you in particular about taking on the challenge of being a director on Key West? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think Key West has a great history to it. And uh, I think as a, maybe not so much as a director, but as a curator, you, you know, there are a lot of really interesting stories to be told. I think that we're, you know, uniquely situated to be exploring issues related to climate change, certainly the relationship to Cuba. I mean, these are stories that are Florida stories, certainly, um, but Key West even more so. Apparently... There's no disadvantage to being situated at the end of this particular road. You know, Key West is certainly remote. I think that that's part of it. its 
its interest. And in fact, it, you know, it's, it's an advantage more than anything from a creative standpoint. I think that um, actually the challenge is the opposite. It's, you know, bohemians and artists have been drawn to Key West for generations just because it's at the end of the road and it's a place where they can think freely as a result and live freely and do things maybe out of the public eye a little bit, for better or for worse. But, um, you know, that's what's been interesting. And I think at this day and age, the challenge is to preserve that as it gets wrapped more closely into the rest of the world. You know, now the internet and just, you know, the tourist industry is caught up to Key West. And so I think part of our, our mission is to preserve a place for creativity and funkiness and free thought. Award-winning author Josie Sigler is one of the three new residents I meet at the studios of Key West. Originally from Detroit, she thrives on isolation. I tend to write best, actually, in really rural areas. Even though I grew up in Detroit, you know, I have um, a tiny 10 by 10 cabin in the California Nevada desert. That's where I write best, you know, um, where it's silent and there's no internet and no electricity. So, Do you see this site, Key West, having an influence on your writing? I do. You know, um, there are actually a lot of connections between Florida and Michigan. And people where, where I grew up who, who had, you know, kind of big dreams to sometimes get out of Michigan and talk a lot about Florida because you can drive 75 all the way down. You know, this is like a, a big deal in the car culture of Michigan. We're going to drive 75 all the way to Florida. Sigler has always wanted to come here. In fact, more than a few characters in her autobiographical stories have longed to go somewhere warm. She's hoping to figure out why. Well, what are folks looking for when they seek out a place like Key West? There's a way that I'm seeing it through multiple sets of eyes, and it's going to make its way into a story, I think. Lori Swartz is a painter based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In the months before we meet, she's completed residencies in New York and Wyoming. Why are you choosing residencies as a mode of generating your creative practice? I have found them to be an amazing way to take away all the distractions of life, and there's nothing else I have to do except for pay. I, I find it incredibly valuable. And then also just the interaction and connections with the other residents. I've had really amazing experiences talking about life and art and and critiques and, and kind of just happening organically with people in residencies. And I've kept those connections. This year, artist Kara Bonowitz is on a quest for the encounters that Schwartz describes. She left her sweet life in Brooklyn, her flat, her museum job, and her studio, to embark on a year of residencies. In the French castle where she lived for the past month, Bonowitz started a new drawing series. I thought of doing this series of, of the morning light of all these different places where I'll be living. This is the year of residency for you. Ideally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's excellent. Yeah. It's a great opportunity to see the light in different places mm-hmm. and, and explore and meet the other people that are interested in stepping outside their own you know, working sphere. Yeah, I was just thinking about that um, this morning, actually. I went out with Lori... I'm Kathy Bird, and this is Fresh Talk with the studios of Key West director Jed Dodds and residents Josie Sigler, Lori Swartz, and Kara Bonowitz. Our conversation is the latest in the Fresh Talk series about international residency programs. Greetings from Miami, Florida. This is Fresh Art International, and I'm Kathy Bird. We're broadcasting live from Jolt Radio, and today we're talking about culture and community in South Florida. In the studio with me, three Miami-based culture makers, Bahia Ramos, director of the arts program for the Knight Foundation. Hi. Hi, Kathy. Deborah Mitchell, artist and director of Artist in Residence, The Everglades, a.k.a. Airy. Good morning. Hi. And Jose Elias, musician, director, and founder of Community Arts and Culture and a former Airy Fellow. Hello. Later in this show, we'll be sharing a conversation I recorded with a New York-based artist, Adam Nadell, who was an Airy Fellow in 2014, and has a new exhibition 
in the Everglades National Park. We'll be talking about that in a minute. But first, Bahia Ramos, you have come to us as a native of Brooklyn. You are uh, now with Night Foundation since 2009. Yes, made the, the glorious move to Miami uh, from Brooklyn and have just been witness to all this great cultural change that's been happening in Miami over the years. I know you started working with the community foundation programs, and now you're director of the arts program. That is huge. Yes, it's huge. You know, I have a background in museums uh, from my time in New York and have been really invested in building cultural spaces and opportunities for artists and community. And it's just been an awesome privilege to help lead the arts program here in Miami for Knight Foundation. Well, they're the biggest <laughs> supporter. We're know. all just like, kind the of the biggest. in the arts room. <laughs> they kind of are <laughs> because they've made such a huge commitment to culture and community here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think one thing we're especially proud of is the Night Arts Challenge. Um, we're entering a decade of the Arts Challenge here in South Florida to which uh, we've invested over $30 million in that time to um, over 300 projects that include everything from individual artists to arts institutions that are very beloved here in the South Florida region. I know there are eight night cities across the U.S., mm -hmm. but there's only four. Yeah, there are only four night arts challenge cities. I mean, we look for cities uh, within our own communities that really are kind of ripe for the, the cultural kind of uh, blossoming, if you will. We look for places that have are filled with residents and artists that have great ideas and inst institutions that are willing to take a risk and, and really kind of charge up and bring the community together through the arts. I like how the Arts Challenge gives that opportunity. The first introduction to it is just give us your idea. Yeah. Just, just give us an idea. You don't have to tell us how you're going to get there, but what are you thinking about would be something you want to engage in to alter, elevate, transcend the culture of Miami. So tell us how that works. Yeah, sure. So the, the, first, um, the first part of the application is really about 150 words about your best idea. Uh, for us as a foundation, it was really important to release, kind of get rid of those barriers that we see um, people struggle with when engaging with private foundations, these long applications, submit your budget, submit this. No, we just wanted to start from scratch. And we wanted anyone to be able to do this. So you don't need to have a 501c3. You don't need to have like 10 years of audited financials to participate. You can actually be a, a person in a community that has a great idea about the arts and just put your idea out there in a space for us to think about and try to support. Right. And I know that on our show so far, and it's a new show, we're, I still consider it sort of in the pilot zone. We're still figuring <laughs> yeah. it out here. Yeah. Uh, but we've featured uh, some of the the recipients of the awards, uh, the Borscht Film Festival yes, we were talking yes. about last week, mm -hmm. along with Project 305 oh, that correct. just launched with the New yeah. World Symphony. Yep. Fringe projects, mm -hmm. the public art, <laughs> yes, and uh, the Black Art Fair Prism. Correct. Correct. So I've been glad. I've. I. That's another reason I wanted to invite you. Is like we're talking about your people here. <laughs> Get to the source material. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I think I think those that the the projects that you listed also speak to like the broad array and kind of geographic reach of the challenge. We believe that art can happen anywhere, and there is great art to be found and supported in every neighborhood through our region. And so it's important that our winners are reflective of the actual kind of community that exists and resides and participates in our cities. And I think that sampling that you just gave really kind of is a testament to, to our, our mission and our intent to do that. Well, I'm a big fan. Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> a few months ago, you, you announced 44 new projects. And uh, those winning arts challenges, I mean, it took a year, I guess, to process them. And they're announced, and if we before we talk about them, uh, once you get an award, 
you don't just get the money, you have to raise the matching funds for it. Yes, correct. So this is a matching challenge grant to, one, enable to, the community to have some buy-in into the project and, and allow artists to really kind of go beyond their their individual reach and say, hey, community, I'm, I'm putting this on, I'm developing this. Is there a chance for you to kind of participate in the development of this project? And so these are matching challenge grants, but we give you time to raise that match. We don't say, oh, you've won this, now I need to see your project in six weeks. We say you have about a year to a year and a half to raise those funds to execute your project. Um, we have kind of grantee 101s and trainings, and we have staff that help people along the way as they're going through this process. And um, and I think it's it's just kind of an exercise in, in, in professionalizing the practice, if you will, a little bit, and getting people in tune and, and, and aware of what's happening in the city. And so artists feel better connected to the community. Residents are more able to participate on whatever level they feel they can in, in this in this um, in in this in the, the cultural life of community. And, and we're able to see more dollars kind of be focused on the arts and community. And we see how, ideally, mm-hmm. if, if you give them that kickstart in a way, then after that, they become self-sustaining yeah, um, that's the goal. That's the goal. This I is mean, self-sustaining yeah. cultural community. The goal is to keep great arts ideas that allow for excellent art to happen in every neighborhood of this region to keep to keep going, to keep them happening, to keep them flourishing, and to make sure that we have an environment that is friendly and sustainable for artists here. Well, I noticed that this year's selections, you seem to be looking for sort of the the overlooked Miami. <laughs> yes. If I was describing it and What's beneath the surface that people could discover about Miami that, with a little help, yeah, to make them more visible. So, yeah, you know, we, we know that Miami can sometimes get caught up in the the kind of beach identity or like the the kind of tourist image, and we know that there's real depth and like life and. Um, a real thoughtful practice happening here, no matter what artistic genre. And so I thought our class this year and over the years has really been reflective of what lies beneath the surface of Miami, what people don't imagine happens or could um, could occur in Miami. And so, uh, you know, I think our projects were, this class is a part of that. I like how you call it a class. Yeah, they're all cohorts. <laughs> they're all our like network. We love, you know, we love again, it's about connection and and people feeling connected to a broader mission of of having art be a part of your life, a part of your experience here. I think we're getting there, it feels yeah. like. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of the projects that were funded just to give people a heads up what to look for sure. and what to support. Uh, yeah. Sure. So um, some some that are kind of top of mind are thinking about Terrell McCraney and, you know, with all the success that he's been having with Moonlight and really putting the, the feeling and the spirit of Miami on screen. Terrell is taking that into a theatrical practice as well and doing a project called um, 3051 and kind of dedicating that to the spirit of this kind of arts entrepreneurial spirit of people saying, you know what? I don't need a full cast of characters to put on, like, to express my talent. I can do this. I can put on, like, a one-man show. And so he's producing kind of one-man shows, one-man theatrical shows or dance performances or music performances that speak to the kind of, like, the, the, the efficient production, if you will, of, like, culture in Miami. Um, another, you know, noted photographer called Just from the Miami Herald is doing a, a, a project called Havana, Haiti. And I think that was special because we often think that our communities are very distinct and that, you know, the cultures of Miami in this melting pot are, are very unique to each other. But with Havana, uh, Haiti, Carl brings these the cultures and practices of Cuba and Haiti together to show the commonality and think about how we bridge these these um, our existences and and see the humanity and the commonalities between each other in Miami to make it uh, more unified. Yeah, I just to jump back a little bit to Terrell's project sure. for those who can't be maybe living on the planet and not know about <laughs> Moonlight. Uh, is a, a film that was created, uh, it's based on a story written by Terrell mm-hmm. that talks about growing up in Miami. And 
it ha- it's an Oscar nominee uh, for a film award, and it's it's an amazing thing to have that come out of Miami. I know we're all excited yes. to see that happen. Yes. Uh, so you never know what's going to happen with your investment in the cultural community here, and and what direction it would can go. I know artists in residence in Everglades actually also received uh, awards for three different times from the Knight Foundation Arts Challenge. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, Aerie's been kind of our our great winners uh, to speak of because I think when I talk about kind of institutions taking risk and using their space and reimagining their space and environment in a different way, I think Deborah has taken Aerie to that level. And from billboards kind of off the, the off of 95 showing images of the wildlife from the in the Everglades to building kind of a, a beautiful gallery within the space of the Everglades and allowing artists to have their practice and be in residence there and spend time reflecting. Um, I think it's been a great evolution of the space and one that we really want to honor and kind of helping her move forward and continue to take risks and incorporate art into the everyday life of that space. I think it's really interesting. We talk about community and the Everglades is a community. Mm -hmm. It's an environmental community. Mm -hmm. And Deborah, you're here in the studio with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Kathy. I was reading about your art, and I know your work itself explores man's relationship with nature, and you are the perfect fit as the director with the energy that you give toward the job. And I've, I've been to some of the events out there, and I've seen how much you give to it, that you are just the perfect director for artists and residents oh. in the Everglades. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's always been run by artists. Uh, Donna Markser founded it in 2001, and then the amazing Christy Gass stepped in in 2009 and filed for a 501c3 because she saw so much potential in outreach um, for the program, that is, getting the work of the artists to the public somehow. And we started doing that really with our first Night Arts Towns grant, which was for public outreach. It was a very small grant. It enabled the uh, area, the then board of directors, because it was all volunteer, no one was paid, to to go out and do things like talks and coffee shops and bookstores and simple hikes with artists in the park itself. So it was a really great kind of ramp up to everything that has happened since then, because since then we moved on into the Billboard Project, and now this more permanent home for our organization. So we're just trying to take the right steps and grow um, grow in a very solid way so that we have a, a great foundation. I think it's really important here because I'm loving this about Jolt and the internet radio is that we have listeners from all over the world, and some might not know what the Everglades is. And we talk about it as a place uh, that's really important to everyone in this room and many, many more. But the Everglades, for those of you who aren't from here, is a region of South Florida, once known, clearly known as the River of Grass, and covered by a shallow, slow-moving sheet of water at one point that that covered a good uh, landmass in Florida. And in 1947, it was established as a national park. And it's a subtropical wilderness with marshes, mangroves, palms, and wild uh, hammocks, habitat for rare and endangered species Mm -hmm. like the manatee, the American crocodile, and the I've heard it described as the elusive Florida panther. (laughs) That's correct. Although as I was driving away from the Everglades, I saw a panther crossing sign, (laughs) which I found quite entertaining. Um, (laughs) So, Ari was born in 2002. How many residents have lived there since, have had their month there since it launched? 144, exactly. So, we're talking about writers, painters, photographers, dancers, composers. And just last year, we really encouraged scholars to apply. Um, And we had one apply, but unfortunately, scheduling would not allow that person. That person uh, scored very highly and got into the program, but scheduling has so much to do with this because you must be able to spend one month of your life there. Our board of directors and the National Park does not want anyone to come for a week. And you've got to go on your own. It's not like you can bring your family and 
your dog. You can have a, a visit <laughs> from your family, but no, we are, have no pets at this stage. And uh -huh. the space is really fine for one person or perhaps a couple, but it's not enormous. So you can't um, also provide insurance and backup for someone's extended uh, family. Right. But I wanted to back up to what you said about people not understanding perhaps all over the world what the Everglades is because you'd be surprised how many people out on the trails are Germans and Japanese and Chinese. I like hearing that. It's true. I, I find that so many more locals in Miami have not been to the Everglades mm -hmm. than folks who are visiting from abroad. So I um, hear what you're yeah. saying, and it is a World Heritage site. Correct. Site. That's so right. it's not mm -hmm. like it's not on the list somewhere. It is a lot of places. So, uh, Bahia was talking about the Wild Billboard Project, and that celebrated the centennial of national parks. Mm -hmm. Where did those pop up? Are they still up? Are there some still around? That's a great question, too. We do still have one billboard up by artist, Israeli artist Donna Levy, and it's in Wynwood, adjacent to the Rubel Collection. It's on the side of a building owned by one of our sponsors, Metro One, and it's been up for almost a year and a half. We're very grateful for that space. Uh, the image is, is, is alludes to climate change because the artist sunk um, a rooms of furniture or floated rooms of furniture in a cypress dome. So as one is walking by or taking the bus or driving by, you get that feeling of, okay, this is what it could look like if we're not careful, everybody. So I love the fact that that billboard has stayed up so long, um, and that's in Wynwood. The other thing I'm pretty proud of on this project is the actual locations of everything, Kathy, because we had uh, Frankie Cruz's piece in Little Haiti, great area where so much is happening right now. And again, as you alluded to, the one on I-195, that was sort of the big ticket item because it got two and a half million views um, in, I think, four weeks. So wonderful during Art Basel for artist Susan Silas from Brooklyn. Was that the bird one? Indeed, yes. yes. The hovering vulture over Miami. With a cloud and then a cloud. It, it was yes. a really yes. double... Uh, Temple kind of thing. Susan Silas's work is, is very, very beautiful, and she focused on birds in her residency. And lastly, we have a British photographer named um, Rebecca Reeve, who partnered with a poet, Mary Beth Ellis, and, and her billboard was out on the Tamiami Trail, sponsored by the Miccosukee Tribe and Love the Everglades movement. And it um, depicted a, that iconic vision of the river of grass where you see the sawgrass flowing in the wind it was right there but rebecca's work speaks largely to the anthropological forces that have taken place largely in that contested landscape by going ahead and adding fabric and curtains and and then text on it oh that's a beautiful one Thank i've you. seen the photo i haven't seen the billboard mm -hmm. being a bike person right now <laughs> not out on the highways uh before we move on to more talk about the residency and, and the Everglades. But yeah, let's talk about the next Night Arts Challenge. Well, it's coming right up. Yes, it's coming right up. Um, the challenge opens on March 29th and runs through April 28th. That's when you have time to submit your 150-word idea. Um, but we'll be out in community beginning the week of March 20th, everywhere from Little Haiti to Kendall, Wynwood, Hialeah, hold, holding everything from hosted sessions with grantee partners to office hours at coffee shops where you can find us and help us, you know, we can help you wordsmith your idea. And so we'll be out and about through all corners of the region, um, just in, in engaging with people and helping people kind of submit their idea. So we're really looking forward to it. March 29th, uh, go to nightarts.org for any, uh, for the schedule of uh, outreach sessions and also for your application. Thank you for joining us, Bahia. Thank Wonderful. you. I hope to see you again soon. Yes, me too. Our next guest will be uh, a fellow, recent fellow, Jose Elias. And Jose is based in Miami, and he's a musician wildly involved in a ton of projects. And he's also founder of a nonprofit community arts and culture project that presents an annual music festival, but today we're going to be talking about how the River of Grass has inspired his own personal creative practice. Let's get in the mood by listening to the sounds from a composition he shared with me called Alligator Medicine. Mm -hmm. 
This is Fresh Art International on Jolt Radio, and I'm Kathy Bird. Today we're talking about culture and community, in particular one community, the eco-community, that we're wanting to explore with our guests today. Miami-based musician Jose Elias is in the studio with me, and the composition you just heard is titled Alligator Medicine. Good morning, Jose. Good morning, Kathy. Tell me what that piece is about. Alligator medicine uh, is inspired by uh, uh, native uh, wisdom. The alligator totem speaks to uh, resilience and having patience. Uh, and just basically, it, it, to me, it related to the situation with the Everglades and how the Everglades has always been so resilient despite all the stuff that's happened throughout the years to it, you know. And uh, so alligator medicine being that it's native wisdom and it related to the Everglades, I felt was the proper uh, title for the piece, which is actually this, what you just heard is an interlude to a broader, uh, it's like a four or five part uh, piece, which that is, you know, one of the, the variations of. Nice. 
Well, I appreciate that you shared some of your sounds with me, and we'll be listening to others. But I'm curious, what apply, what inspired you to apply for this residency? It's it's funny. Uh, we were just talking about the Night's Art Challenge, and uh, in 2014, uh, our organization, I, have, I run a nonprofit organization you mentioned earlier, Community Arts and Culture, we received a, an award for a festival that I do called the Afro Roots World Music Festival. And at the award ceremony, we had someone from Aerie approach me uh, and tell me, hey, you know, I love the band you work with. I work with uh, locally a, a group called the Spam All-Stars that's very popular here. And, and uh, the person is like, oh, I love your band. And, you know, you guys should consider, one of you should consider applying for the Aerie program. So as time went by, you know, I, the signs just kept popping up. And every year, at the beginning of the year, for the last I guess 15 years, I've always started my year with camping in Flamingo. So I kind of like, you know, kind of disconnect from the world and go out into the Everglades. And that's been like a routine for me. That's your ritual. Yeah, it's my ritual. Exactly. I like that. That's a great idea. <laughs> it's, it's, it's beautiful to start the year Don't out there. Don't talk about it too much. You may find yourself with a whole tribe around you. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, one thing led to another and it just, the signs kept popping up and it's like, you know what, let me apply and lo and behold, uh, I get a call. I'm like in Brooklyn, New York in the summer of uh, 2015, and I get a call from Deborah. Hey, Jose, uh, by the way, <laughs> we're your uh, finalist for our, our, our residency program. I was so thrilled. I mean, it, it, that was just like, you know, made my year, <laughs> basically. And what did you propose as your project? What did you tell them you would do while you were there well you know as a as a musician and composer my goal was to create uh, a piece uh, called the Everglades songbook suite uh, that was always my my intention to create a body of music being that I you know in the past I've done a lot of production work I've had a, a recording studio in my home and I've gotten into a lot of production work over the years so I figured you know why not create you know since I'm going in for composition not only to have a, a piece of music that I could donate to the, the park, but then just go from there beyond that because there's so much inspiration. How can I just limit it to one piece? So me with my ambitious musician self just decided, well, I'm going to continue this project and it's going to be something ongoing because I'm always in the Everglades anyway. So it, it just kind of you know became the, the, the mission for me, my mission statement as, as an artist to create uh, a series of of compositions that not only are you know inspired by the Everglades, but that in also incorporate the sounds of the Everglades at as the forefront, you know, as opposed to being like in the background, which we've heard a lot of times in recordings. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I really wanted to give the Everglades a voice through the music that I composed. I know that the Miami-based artists that have had the privilege of being fellows there. They just dream of when they can go back. So I, I, I can really understand that. How did you find the sounds that you captured? Stealth, you figured out, you just wandered. How did you find these sounds that we're going to hear a few of them? Yeah, well, a lot of it came from, uh, for instance, uh, we have uh, the wonderful resource of the airy board members like Keith Whittington, who's a, a biologist, and skip and they would come out and I'd ask them and you know people in the park some of the rangers hey where can I go to find for instance owls or you know or can I get you know sounds of a specific bird and all that you know before I entered the residency I, I really kind of had a uh, an idea of what I was going for uh, and of course a lot of it is up to chance because it's not like you're going to show up and they're the the owl's going to be waiting for you. Okay, you ready to record me? You know, like you set up a recording date with the owl. You know, that's not going to happen. You know? It's true. So, that's what happened to me in Key West when I wanted to catch the roosters. They were everywhere, everywhere, and then suddenly it was silent. Yeah. I needed my roosters. I need yeah. the cranes. So I, I get... <laughs> so let's play an example of how you captured some of these sounds and integrated a conversation with them. Thank <laughs> you. 
It's funny, when I heard that, Jose, I immediately wrote you a note and said, was that a call and response? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Were you actually talking to the owls with your instrument? Because it sounds so incredibly gorgeous. And the instrument you were using was a shaku- shakuhachi. Thank yeah, you. No, Saku- I must pronounce it. Shakuhachi. Shakuhachi, yeah. And actually, uh, there was two conversations going on there. The initial recording that I captured, which actually was at Long Pine Key, I have been trying to capture those barred owls for years now uh, at Mahogany Hammock, which they usually dwell there. And, you know, I had no success. And then they, I guess they came to me, you know, it was like they showed up at my campsite. That was like really early in the morning, too, because they usually, you know, are nocturnal creatures. Uh, and um, there was actually two barred owls there having a conversation. If you could, you could you hear it without the shakuhachi flute, uh, which is one of the samples that I had sent you, you'll hear that it it is the the higher pitch, and then there's another one that you hear, and then sometimes the lower pitch one will start the conversation, and the higher pitch one will answer. So they're actually having a conversation, and that's what's what to me was so incredible that I was able to cap capture that, which usually these birds are you know you know you find them by themselves, and there was actually two of them facing each other. And having this conversation back and forth. And so the, the shakuhachi flute was uh, a friend of mine, Gino Kokomir, who actually, I recorded that track separately uh, without him even hearing the owls. I just said, look, just, you know, this is what I'm going for. Give me this. And he delivered. And then what I did was, once I edited the owls in, in, in my uh, uh, program, I took the shakuhachi and I interlaced it. You know, kind of to, so that it's having a conversation because really in music, a lot of times uh, between rhythms and, and melodies, you're having conversations, you know. Um, so that's what I was going for is, is to create that conversation. And even the, the shakuhachi flute, the way it sounds, it kind of has a similar sound or timbre that relates to the sounds that the, the barred owl makes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt that was the proper instrument to bring in on that first phase of, you know, embellishment. And will, <clears throat> excuse me, will these conversations, I would call them, uh, will they appear in the Everglades songbook? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's one of the components of it, you know. Uh, there'll be compositions where I have a lot of uh, sounds from the wild interlaced with music as far as, you know, creating the conversations and what I like to call interspecies communication through music. Um, and then, of course, other compositions that I'm doing. Uh, and, and really, it's a broad spectrum of, of different instruments and sounds and genres that I'm incorporating into this. Uh, being that I'm just a lover of world music and I really, you know, and, and performing as, as a professional, I, I do perform a lot of these different styles, you know. Uh, the previous track you heard, Alligator Medicine, is uh, inspired by um, um, blues from Mali. You know, the actual origin of the blues. So it's an African kind of blues kind of vibe. And with that uh, aspect of the compositions, I, I try to go with capturing the vastness of the Everglades through music. Beautiful. Uh, One more of these wildlife interludes, and then we'll move on to hear a conversation with another resident. Okay.
Good morning. That was a beautiful musical interlude between musician Jose Elias, the director of a little piece with insects and instruments. Jose was a recent fellow in the Artist-in-Residence Everglades program, and since 2001, the Everglades have been a temporary habitat for people who are spending months there as fellows in a program known as ARI. And New York-based photographer Adam Nadell was a past resident. I met him when he was installing Getting the Water Right, an exhibition he produced with Jessica Catalino, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. And together, they tell the human story of South Florida's ecosystem. Let's listen. I'm here at the Ernest Coe Visitor Center at the Everglades National Park, and you hear wild animal sounds, but they're actually recordings of animals that can be found in the Everglades. I'm sitting next to Adam Nadell. We're here to talk about a special project that Adam's been working on, and it's called Getting the Water Right. It's the motto for the survival of the Everglades. And when they say getting the water right, they're referencing the quality of water, the quantity of water, and the timing of the water. And unfortunately, the stakeholders in South Florida can't agree on exactly what that should be. And their agreement is necessary for the the continued health of the the ecosystem here. We hear a lot these days about the epoch of the human. And I think this project is about the human interaction with the Everglades and what that means and what it could mean. Yeah, at, at the that, that's really perceptive. At the core of this project is the ideas of the Anthropocene and the future of biodiversity on our planet, including our own future of our own species. So uh, although I'm using Southern Florida and the Everglades as a, a template to discuss how humans and nature interact, and uh, both successfully and unsuccessfully, at its core is, is sort of the, the more global question of what is our species' future if we continue to conduct ourselves in particular manners on the Earth. You had a residency here in 2014. It was an amazing opportunity to spend a month here not only because you got to meet the people who are working to save the environment, but also the people who visit, and then to be able to travel outside of the park itself to visit the communities surround it who are actually living in the Everglades. They just aren't really aware of it. Just to quote you, the Everglades is dying. The idea of the project itself is that, which I'm trying to, and, and with the great support of Jessica Catalino, is to present a balanced and realistic and non-politicized, hopefully, view of the situation, sort of the facts on the ground. Obviously, I have a particular view of the kind of world I would like to live in. I think one of the reasons why I was excited to work on this is I think it provides a a very clear-cut opportunity for people to understand how human uh, interaction and choices about how we live our lives is affecting the world around us, and are we comfortable with letting things continue on the current trajectory, uh, which is going to lead to a very particular outcome. One example on view is the sod field. That's a gorgeous photo of a green sod field. Beautiful grass, as far as the eye can see. The meaning of that to the wetlands is significant. That sod field is in the Everglades, the river of grass. So essentially, 200 years ago, you had the, a river of grass. And then because of choices that we make on, on how we, we like to, to live and what kind of environment we want around us, that land was reclaimed. And now instead of having a river of grass, you have grass, sod, and you still have water. But the use is radically different. What was once the river of grass, which was part of the healthy and ecosystem, You now have grass and water, which is doing the exact contrary. Because to cultivate the sod, you need phosphate. And you also can't have a free flow of of water coming through. It's said that development in Florida has reduced the 
size of the Everglades by one half. Is that a good estimate? Those are the words that we use in the exhibit, but it's also one important aspect of how I've, I viewed how to ap approach this visually and intellectually as a consequence, is that I actually don't see that half of the Everglades, which is now used to grow food and provide jobs or for golf, for entertainment or, or housing, for me, it's actually, it's still the watershed. It's still actually part of the Everglades ecosystem. And I think it's our ability to successfully separate that aspect of our daily lives. We have nature and then we have human which is a real factor in, in contributing to the current ecological issues. How will this exhibition be playing out in the Everglades itself? We have a, a number of locations. We're at the Co-Visitor Center, which is actually the, uh, what we hope to, will be the, the traveling exhibit for museums and schools. And then Flamingo a gas station, Royal Palm, and also at Shark Valley, and then a few other sort of smaller locations walks throughout the park. What will people experience? I've seen here panels with text, and there's some audio components. What's fantastic is the park uh, has Wi-Fi now available uh, at the co-center, so people can access the website, which has oral supplemental material. In some cases, it's people who are in the photographs talking about the subjects that interest them, um, well, I was crowned sweetheart in June of last year, and I have had the honor of representation of the beef industry and going around to multiple... The sound of sugarcane burning. And one, which is sort of a favorite of mine, is a meeting involving stakeholders discussing the future of the Everglades. Uh, flooding is a real big issue, but more important is human life. What is, for you, is the significance, your own takeaway from working on this project? One of the sort of unexpected developments with this, and I'm kind of, in, it's sort of embarrassing to say that it took me this long to figure it out, is I never really understood how our perceptions of who we are and how we're aggressively taught are, are the uniqueness of human beings. Um, so aggressively affects our outlook, the world around us, to the point that we're actually destroying it. A lot of our Western traditions have really put our heads in a, in a place where we, we make divisions between nature and us when, in fact, there are none. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird, and you were just listening to my conversation with 2014 artist-in-residence in Everglades fellow Adam Nadell about his exhibition, Getting the Water Right. On the show today, our guests have been Bahia Ramos, Knight Foundation Arts Program Director, Deborah Mitchell, Director of Ever the Everglades Artist-in-Residence Program, and a recent ARI fellow, Jose Elias. Before we go, Deborah, you need to tell us there's a big event coming this weekend. I want to talk about that. Yes, and I want to say thank you so much to Jose for sharing those sounds with us because I hadn't heard those before, and they evoked a very emotional reaction in me. Thank you. I love them. So the public will be able to hear those uh, sounds on Saturday at our area annual benefit at the Kampong this year in Coconut Grove. The benefit is really all... Um, being organized to match funds for our current Knight Foundation grant, which is for the Airy Nest. It's a gallery opening on April 30th in, uh, it's going to be a permanent interdisciplinary, sorry, that's a long word, exhibition space down in the Everglades National Park Ernest F. Coe Visitor Center. And it's groundbreaking because it's the first contemporary art gallery in a national park, certainly run by an artist-in-residence program. And we're going to be able to present all sorts of art science collaborations there. Uh, the first show will have Elizabeth Condon, a solo show called Swamp Notes, who's also opening Friday night at Dorsch, Dorsch Gallery, Emerson Dorsch. So we're very, very excited about that. And the benefit uh, will be three hours of performances, installations, and um, lectures and interactions with the artist on the Kampong in the Grove from 3 to 6 p.m. And the information is, is on our site, airy.org, if you're interested in, in attending. You'll need a ticket. 
Yes, mm-hmm. and the Kampong is a really important eco-site uh, for us in Miami. It is, and again, it's so underused and undervalued. One of the main reasons we chose this location is because the Kampong, through FIU, commissioned one of our fellows, Mark Dion, to do a permanent installation there in David Fairchild's studio. So it's called the Kampong Laboratory. And it's essentially taking the artifacts from the past again with some of Mark's collected vintage artifacts and recreating that space that David Fairchild worked in when he was one of those seminal founders in helping delineate the the park boundary line. He was going up in blimps with Ernest F. Coe, the man that the visitor center is actually named after. So we just love how the Kampong really merged all of these Everglades lovers into one project. And when we heard Mark had an installation there, we felt it would be perfect for this project. And Kampong is related to the Fairchild Botanical Gardens, which is another landmark uh, ecosystem in our city. We're very lucky to have all this green world around us. Definitely. And this time of year, there's just so much to do. It's a yes. great time to be out. Well, I want to hear one more of Jose's compositions because just the name alone will make you want to listen to it. Huh. It's called Beach Bear ba- Banjo. an excerpt from Jose Elia's latest composition, Beach Bear Banjo, and he suggests while we were listening that we imagine the bear playing that banjo, okay? (laughs) Thank you, Vaya, Jose, Deborah, for joining me on the station today. It's just been a great pleasure. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. It's been an honor. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Yes, uh, Thanks for joining us on Fresh Art International at Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. If you like what you're hearing, let us know at Fresh Art INTL and at Jolt Radio. Meet us here every Wednesday morning for Contemporary Art Talk.